Greetings, everyone. This is Sound Health Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards, as I say every week, and it's true, every week is improving, expanding, making the soundhealthportal.com ever more amazing. It's just every week, and I know I say this every week, but it's true. Every time I see a new demo of something else that's been added or been figured out or a new chart or a new pie chart or a new... Is, it's an amazing way to show just a quantity of data that is amazing to begin with, let alone in a way that it's actually visual so you can see, oh, this many things lit up, and you might want to look at that pathway or this pathway. And for those that don't know about the Sound Health Portal, I guess I should explain. With the Sound Health Portal, you can go there now online, and particularly if you uh, want to check it out, you can go and check out the campaigns tab at soundhealthportal.com and scroll down on campaigns and I'm not sure what they have posted now I think there is PTSD which is a whole other conversation with Dr. Manley Um, PTSD uh, probably golf is still there which is amazing Um, bio diet and there was one other but I can't think of other, other and the campaigns are free campaigns so you can sign up for free just your email address and name. And you do two 45-second voice recordings, which you do right online through your computer. And you then choose the campaign you want and submit your vocal print. And within 2 to 12 hours, typically, you'll get a report back with a boatload of information that you can then sit down with a cup of tea and review and or then take to your healthcare practitioner and talk to them about what the imbalances are and what they see as spikes or what's low or high because it translates your, the software takes your voice, looks at the information in the voice, actual notes. This is where Sherry comes in the notes and the information that are within the, how the voice, the tonality and the, I'll leave all that to Sherry. So you get a report, this amazing report and you can sit down and read it and look at things. And one of the things I use frequently on the Sound Health Portal, which is free there, is the Nano Voice. And with the Nano Voice, you can go in, do a 40-second recording, which I do. I'll exp- uh, how I do it is I take a 40-second recording. I then add a supplement or a food I want to test. And I wait about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. And then I go back and do another vocal print or a vocal recording. And I look at the differences in the in the analysis, the waveform of the voice, or actually in the chart that's produced by that, you can see if something spiked or dropped way down. So you can see an, an effector of what you've either taken as a supplement or as something you've eaten to see if you might have a reaction to it or if it causes something to go way up that you weren't aware of or way down or, oh, that did help that. So I use Nano Voice quite a bit. I'm a big fan of the Sound Health Portal. And there are a lot of videos and webinars that Sherry has done online that are available at soundhealthoptions.com. And I think it's under education or media. I can't remember the tab right now and I can't open it because I have too many tabs now. And Sound Health Portal, it's really great to now have this all online. I'm a huge fan. Now... I'll tell you, I'll remind you about this show about 15 minutes after we end the show. 
you can either go to Sound Health Portal, I mean SoundHealthOptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on Sound Health Radio. And the show and the link back to this sh- the show notes at Blog Talk will be available. And or you can go to any of your favorite podcast aggregators, Fancy Talk for application on your phone or device or computer. It could be Dogcatcher, Pocket Casts, my personal favorite. Uh, Google Podcasts is quite good. Any, or Stitcher, that's a very popular one. You can go in and search for Sherry Edwards or Talk to Me Guy, and you'll find over 600 hours of shows. And this show will be at the top. The podcast aggregators are usually a couple of hours before they get them. Some are very fast, but it's just you just have to find the one you like and you have a good rapport with. And you'll be able to find the show there. And this is going to be another great conversation. Dr. Manley and I were already talking about something. We're going to talk a little bit more before we get into the joy phase. I'm looking for being joyful. Boy, that sounds great. Dr. Carla Marie Manley is a clinical psychologist and wellness expert who makes her home in Sonoma County, California. She is passionate about helping others create the lives of their dreams. Dr. Manley believes there's no topic too big or small to address head-on, from offering guidance for relationships, sexuality, and work and communication issues, to providing tools for healing stress, anxiety, and depression. Dr. Manley offers insights on even the most challenging topics. Focusing on overall health and optimal wellness, she also skillfully promotes mindfulness, stress reduction, fitness, and self-care. With a direct and honest approach, plus a dose of humor, Dr. Manley enjoys supporting others through the ever-evolving journey of life. In her life-changing new books, Joy from Fear and Aging Joyfully, Dr. Manley takes us on a soulful adventure into joyful self-awareness. With a personal, welcoming attitude, her books are ideal for individuals and those who enjoy journeying into greater self-awareness through women's groups, men's groups, and book clubs. Dr. Manley joins us to talk to discuss Aging Joyfully, a women's guide to optimal health relationships and fulfillment for her 50s and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Manley. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to have just a little bit of our conversation that we had some of backstage. But I'm going to open the part of that conversation before we get into talk about joyful living. Has the function of fear changed since we lived in caves? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that when we look at, you know, more ancient um, cultures, fear was very productive, very rational-based fear. And we lived in caves and we went along our way. And until there was a threat in the environment, whether it was the threat of a lion or, you know, intruders coming our way, we lived peacefully and happily. And stress was low. And much like animals, right, much like the wolf, heightened sense of alert when there was something going wrong, heightened sense of alert when we needed, you know, to hunt for food, something like that. After that, a natural period of rest and relaxation so that the body's levels of adrenaline and cortisol spiked only occasionally rather than being constantly bathing our bodies. And adrenaline and cortisol, very wonderful um, 
hormones, neurochemicals for the fight and flight response, get us prepared for battle. That's beautiful use of them. It's, that's what we're meant to do. However, when we are living in a world as we do today, we, we are facing um, fear. We are facing threat that does not seem rational to us. It seems waiting around every turn. It's not in the form of lions and tigers and bears. It's in the form of whether it's political threat, whether it is, you know, threat from discord among neighbors and people at work, whether it is, you know, having medical issues, you know, increasing cancer rates, all of those things, and also the threat that technology brings with it, which is if somebody turns on the TV or turns on the radio, they're not going to be bathed in the music of nature. They're going to be bathed in toxic, you know, often highly toxic conversation or debates about politics, about what's right and what's wrong in very dogmatic ways. All of this is experienced by the soul, by the mind as well, as being highly threatening. So there you have it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's a whole show. I have to pause, put that whole thinking on on pause because that's a whole show talking about the toxicity and the over-adrenalization of the bodies by the information that people get tweeted into their brains 900 times a minute. It blows my mind. Amazing. But I want to ask a question about, uh, since we both live in Northern California and we're subject to blackouts by PG&E and fear of fires and the fire was real it was 75,000 acres uh, the Kincaid fire up north and I thought about because I saw a lot of information was following a lot of the information and reports about the fires because I have a bunch of people I know in Northern California who were either evacuated part of about almost 180,000 people that are evacuated I thought about what about firemen how do they how do they process their fear? How do they, I mean, how do they do that? They're like soldiers. They're going into a kind of a war zone. And how do they, how do they do it? Well, A, how do they do that? But B, do their bodies, some, do they understand somehow the difference between, the, the classic one is the, do we know the difference between an actual saber-toothed tiger? Does our mind know the difference between a real one versus one that we really concentrate on? How do they process that? Do they? Yes, some of them do. And here's, this is a, it's such a great question, Richard. And so definitely there is trauma, there is PTSD, there are high levels of anxiety, suicide, depression among our first responders around the world, in our country, around the world. That's a given. Our policemen, our firefighters, their responses, you know, depending upon how compartmentalized they are as human beings, they will either know that they're responding in a negative fashion or they won't know it. They won't realize it will be more unconscious and it will come out in another way. But one of the key differences between a first responder and the general population is this piece. And I can compare it, say, to a psychologist or a doctor. When we are entering, like like a physician, a heart surgeon, when we are entering, which is why physicians and psychologists don't work on their own family, because you have to put on a hat 
a different hat as a first responder, as a clinician, as a physician, the hat that says, I am here to do my job as a soldier, whatever it is. So you go in and you do the work you need to do, and if you're very good at compartmentalizing, you may look as though, and indeed you may come out fairly unscathed, depending upon the nature of what you encountered. However, for many people, because they are, we are all feeling, emoting beings, we, we become scarred. And so for the first responders, even though they put on their hat of the fireman, the firefighter, the policeman, the sheriff, whatever it is, if they do not come out and put on their human hat of father, um, griever, husband, whatever it is, and then have the opportunity to process the experience, to get it out of the body, to get it processed through the mind, then even if they are able to do that, but the more they don't, the more likely they are to suffer from anxiety, depression, suicidality, because indeed they are facing chronic you know, stress and chronic threat when they are out there fighting a fire, even if it is, quote-unquote, their job. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And can we... Can we... We talked backstage, and I've talked before about having been a chef. Completely different situation in terms of actual danger, although it's more hazardous than people think. And when I was working on and off for years as a chef, I I would go to the gym and work out afterwards, which people were always like, aren't you tired? Yes, I'm tired, but I also, for me, the idea, and I and I know firefighters that do go to the gym partially because they need to be incredibly fit, but also, I think, because it helps them process out some of their, probably the hormones that occur from going into life-threatening situations. Can we work it out, some of it, at least that way? Or do we really need to do something like EMDR or some kind of actual psychologically-based process to get this out of our bodies, out of our minds? Yeah. Another really beautiful question. So much of, and I don't think there's a singular, you know, one right answer to that. I think depending upon the person, some people, self-included, I need a multifaceted approach. So when after I've had a really long day with clients or a particularly challenging one, I take off my psychologist hat, I leave it at work. Yet, I also sometimes need to journal. I always need some form of physical activity, generally a walk in nature, so that's another detox. Sometimes I will detox with music. Sometimes it needs to be quiet. Sometimes it's meditation. So that's the piece that for the chef who's put in long hours, the policeman, the firefighter, right? Some of it definitely is about getting the system, releasing, getting rid of the cortisol, the, allowing the um, adrenaline to dissipate, increase levels of serotonin, you know, feel-good neurochemicals that can help calm the body, right, calm the mind. And so I, I believe that if we each develop our own tool and I'm really serious about toolkits in this way, without judgment and just saying, hey, in this situation, this is what I need. This is my go-to bag. I might need to adjust it. But the wrong way, and you know, using right and wrong in a very clear sense in this case, the wrong way is to pretend it doesn't exist, to 
self-anesthetize with alcohol, drugs, you know, anger at one's spouse or, you know, dog or children, there is no benefit to that and, in fact, incredible harm to the self and others. And so when you talk about EMDR, I want to share a really poignant story I read about the other day. You remember the Sandy Hook um, massacre, so to speak, back east. And I was reading an article about one of the first responders And indeed, this tells you the the level of trauma. He had gone in. Apparently, Sandy Hook occurred on a pizza day. And so when he went in, there was pizza left out that was starting to rot. It was, you know, left in place because it was a crime scene. And so not only was there pizza, but there were smells that were, you know, extremely hard for him to take in of blood and rotting flesh and all of that sort of thing. And so here, this first responder, something that we take for granted, as simple as the smell of pizza, became toxic to him. Because in his mind, he equated, and this is very common for all of us, not necessarily with pizza, but with something, that we associate that with the trauma. So he would walk into a restaurant or see somebody eating pizza, and he would be triggered and be back at Sandy Hook all over again and so that makes sense because of our neurobiology the way we are wired in a very primitive level is to associate that which causes harm with unsafety so that we avoid it a really basic example is if i go and eat a berry off a bush and it ends up being a poisonous berry, and I start vomiting, I will remember that that bush, and maybe the berry was red, red berries make me ill. Thus, for very good reason, I will be very cautious around red berries. I may be cautious with all red berries, or I may be highly discriminating and go back to the bush and say, okay, this is exactly what they look like. Some of us do that, some of us don't. So, again, when we look at how can we care for the self, and you brought up EMDR, and for listeners who don't know what that is, it is a um, a technique designed by an MD, Francine Shapiro. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's a bit of a misnomer. Now we generally talk about bilateral stimulation. And if you boil it down to... Why is it effective? Because it is effective. It is one of the modalities I use in my own practice. Because when we are highly stressed and the body is flooded with adrenaline and cortisol, two key areas of the brain, the amygdala and the hippocampus, that are responsible for appropriate processing and storage of memories, they don't work very well. And thus, Key elements of certain memories, traumatic memories, are stored in, I call it, living color in the brain, so that when you see something that reminds you of that trauma, you relive it as though it happened seconds ago or a day ago in technicolor. And EMDR is one of the effective ways of not getting rid of the memory, but allowing the brain to be in a calm setting and reprocess the memory. That's why it's called, we talk about the reprocessing, so that the memory can be stored in the brain as it was originally meant to be were the circumstances not so threatening. 
And EMDR is one of the techniques that is used with many first responders. A lot of counties and cities do have EMDR clinicians who work with their teams. Unfortunately, it is an all too um, underutilized technique because it is very effective. And so, again, I think that for, and again, just not saying that only first responders, of course, are traumatized by this. Things like the Northern California wildfires, those who undergo, um, you know, physical harm, whether it's through domestic violence or an assault, um, people all across the country who live through natural disasters and are traumatized by them. It is so key to each of our mental health and physical well-being that we realize that these are traumatic events. They are taken in by the psyche, no matter how tough we are. We absorb them. So it's really I, really best for us that we process it and then release it from our bodies and our minds whenever we are able to do so so that we can continue peacefully and wisely along our way. Mic drop. <laughs> it's, the, it's the peacefully and wise, wisely um, that's the mic drop like wow what a concept peacefully and wisely i love that idea so much um i'm going to step sideways ever so slightly and ask a question about self-confidence versus self-esteem because in a certain and and kind of I'm, i'm jumping from fireman about this because i know fireman and there is a certain amount of a mix between the two of those. And, and can you talk about the differences of those? Because they seem the same, but they're not truly, are they? No, they're, they're actually very, very different. And unfortunately, many people, even psychologists, don't differentiate between the two. And they are so important um, to really look at individually and then comparative, you know, compare them. So when we look at self-confidence, self-confidence relies on something that is largely external to the heart, spirit, soul. So I may be self-confident because I am a good tennis player or I am a good author or I am great, a great baker or I you know, love my looks and feel confident about my looks, right? A bodybuilder may be self-confident about his or her muscles and physique and external appearance, right? That is all self-confidence. It relies on something largely external. Here is the downside of self-confidence. If I am relying on something external to tell me I'm a wonderful person, then if that is threatened or taken away, I will lose my self-confidence because it was something I was dependent on. That is why we can see Mm. that um, very physically attractive people, because if self-confidence was everything, then you'd say, oh, well, you're beautiful, you're handsome, therefore you have strong self-esteem. No, what they're relying on, if they are relying on their physical attributes, is their physical attributes and knowing how um, fleeting physicality is, how, you know, we might look one way and in 10 or 20 years or if there's an accident, we may not look that way anymore. So we're aware that it's transitory. Thus, 
instinctively we know, hmm, this really isn't everything. And so that is why you can also see somebody who seems to have it all on the outside, the right car, the right jet, the right, you know, yacht, whatever it is, and yet they, you sense that they're bullish or um, kind of a lot of hot air, and they may appear very confident, but maybe they are not humble and kind and gentle inside. And so that is a piece where people will think that somebody who is self-confident might be aggressive or assertive. And again, that they may look that way, they may look very confident, but generally, if that is all they have inside, once you go inside, you will find something very hollow, not a lot there, not a lot of substance. So now let's move to self-esteem. Um, when we look at self-esteem, that is character logical. It is part of the individual's character. It is part of their way of being. We are not born with self-esteem. It is something that we grow as a result of facing life and then facing life's challenges, doing it in a way that feels right and good and is in accord with our values and our moral compass, whatever that might be. And so as we go through life, we build this internal core of whether it's iron or titanium, right? Something that lets you know, no matter the passage of time, no matter if I lose my looks or lose my money or whatever it is, I am a good person. I am the kind of person I want to be. My life can be viewed from the inside out and the outside in, and I will be proud of it. And so by having that sense of self, of being one with oneself, there, there, you create this sense of just calmness and peace that knows that you are a survivor and a thriver and that what you have is something internal and eternal. Thus, huge difference between self-esteem and self-confidence. That's great. That's, Yeah. I think of uh, somebody that I think of that seems filled with self-esteem, oddly enough, is Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Yeah. I, I saw him actually in uh, Northern California at that auditorium I can never remember up there in Santa Rosa. Um, oh, and, yes, the Burbank Center. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to see him... This always seems a little, people hear me talk about Caesar Milan in this way, waxing on like, oh my, wow, is this guy great? But to see him bring people on the stage with random dogs and transform really the person and their attitude, the person's attitude to how the person presents the dog, and then the dog in turn changes. And his self-esteem, his sense of self is so solid because dogs are a pretty good judge of character. <laughs> I trust dogs' opinions. And, I mean, he really is just a, a walking poster child of self-esteem. I don't know if he was always there, but he is now. And it's just an amazing thing to see it in real time transform. Because no, there's no nothing up his sleeves. He's just doing it in real time, working with people, changing how they present with a dog, how they hold themselves. And then suddenly the dog's going, okay, I can follow you. I trust you now. It's like the wolves. 
wolves lead by dynamics of, well, I don't know that they would consider it to be self-esteem, but they really lead by trusting their pack leader and, and having a pack. And self-esteem just seems really important to have a leader that you want to follow that has self-esteem, not just confidence. So that's why I really had to ask that question, because it seems like a very confu- slightly confused and an important area to, for people to understand that self-esteem is a thing that's really, it comes from the core. It does come from the core, and I'm so glad you brought it up, because it is one of my favorite topics, because it is so often missed, but it's foundational. It is like the rebar in a foundation, right? We need that for people who don't know what the rebar is. You know, it's the metal, the the, the stakes that go down and, and plant or that, you know, into the ground that give it the structure and the substance. And the beautiful part is that I love about self-esteem is that it is there for everyone. So maybe you weren't born with the height or weight or looks or whatever it is or the skills you don't, you, you want. And that's fine. Some, you look at the draw. But self-esteem is something that is not dependent on what you were born with. It is something that we can each cultivate every day. And then when we, you know, have our stumbles, as we will, because we're all human, that we pick ourselves up and say, what was that lesson and how can I do better? And strangely enough, that builds stronger self-esteem. Because Mm. our stumbles are part of the process. They're natural. It simply is what do you do with your stumbles? Do you blame it on somebody else? Do you pretend you didn't stumble? Or do you say, ah, this is why I stumbled. What can I do better, if anything? And then let me continue on my way. And it does build, and I love the, I've never seen Caesar Milan, but I believe in dog whispers and animal whispers and horse whispers. And I do believe that animals are in many ways more intelligent than us because they don't tend to have that monkey mind going on that, you know, gets us so derailed sometimes. But, um, I do believe that animals sense when somebody is rooted in their being. And I think that that, again, is something we can all cultivate. And, you know, going back to the trauma and the PTSD, I think that it is something that is harder to cultivate if we have been traumatized at any time in life or throughout life. I encounter people who have, you know, been encountered trauma at almost every developmental stage in life. And so they have a lot of work to do. But it doesn't mean that it has to define who you are. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And uh, once again, there's another foot bookmark for we could do a whole show talking about animals. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think one of the benefits animals have is that they don't have words. And it's the, it, cause, because they, they operate on a being part of a pack and they know that if the pack is weak in some way and it's not a judgment it's just a matter of if the pack is weak we're in trouble or we could be in trouble and versus people who like to talk things relentlessly i myself am holding my hand up i can do that Uh, whereas animals are much more instinctual and much more by smell and texture and like what's that and and moving on they're they're very much in the moment they're not spending a lot of time like, oh, I, I fell over when I ran down that hill and I feel bad about myself. No, there's none of that. They're just moving on. They're having their life, having joy. Absolutely. I want to ask. Yet, I just want to touch on that for sure. a second. 
I recall some research. And um, we have a, a rescue dog in our family that is a uh, Great Dane that was in a kill mm-hmm. shelter. And you can see in him the vestiges of the trauma. And he was apparently, you know, beat for quite some time by somebody, sadly, in the military who had a beard and mustache. And so he still, even though he's, you know, eight years old now, he still has difficulty if he sees a man who um, has a beard and a mustache and he'll, he'll warm up. So you can see how trauma is, can live within an animal, no matter how you work with, with the animal, no matter how long and how gentle you are. And that is a piece that I recall some research, I didn't have it at my fingertips, where they were working with dogs, and I find this so beautiful, who had been through trauma, and they allowed them to witness something on a screen. Of course, they're seeing, you know, not in, in color in front of them. And then they were able to have them on this... Um, like a treadmill where they were able to leave the trauma behind them. And the animals did much better as they were able to physically leave that trauma behind them. It calmed mm. and soothed, soothed their instincts. It brought them back down, you know, parasympathetic nervous system on board, calming them and soothing them so they knew that they could leave that behind. And again, when you think about it, on a primitive level, isn't that what we do? That's the flight response. That's what we want to do. We want to leave that behind. And I think that's where many of us make the mistake. We confuse, this is such an important point, we confuse the passage of chronological time. We think that just because time has elapsed, 10, 15, 20 years, that we have left that trauma behind. No, it must be processed in some way and in order to truly leave it behind. Otherwise, you're just carrying it on as excess baggage. Well, in dogs, this will tie in. Everybody just hold on for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Dogs, when dogs are in a frightful situation or in a state of fear, afterwards, they shake. And people think it's because they're afraid. It's not because they're afraid. It's because their neurological system is set up to throw off the excess adrenal, adrenaline that has come into their system. So they're literally shaking it off. They're not, in a st- they're not attached to the event that just occurred. They're past that event. They're here now, and they're shaking off that excess adrenaline. So that when they're done with that, they're done. Okay, are we eating now? What's going on? Retreat. <laughs> you know, they don't. They're not back there going. Oh, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. They. I mean, they. They learn from the experience, but then after that state of over exhilaration, or over adrenalization, they then dump that adrenaline off. Whereas we humanoids, us upright animals, tend to retain that, which which leads me to. We will get to joy. I promise everybody. Uh, which me, leads me to ask about. You have this wonderful phrase that you use called psychic sticky notes. Could you talk a little bit about psychic sticky notes? Because that's such a, that's some, somewhere in this that all fits into this flow of getting out of fear and that. So what are psychic sticky notes? Okay. In the realm of clinical psychology, we technically call them psychic introjects. Well, it's a 
kind of off-putting term for something that's really simple. So I call them psychic sticky notes. And the reason they're sticky notes is as we're growing up, we're, we're young children, and we're looking around us, we're sponges, we're taking in everything, consciously and unconsciously, largely unconsciously. So whatever our caregivers are doing, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, nanny, you know, whatever's happening, we are looking to them to say, who am I? We are blank slates. And so if mom and dad, and I'm just using mom and dad, there are lots of other, you know, figures in the mix, coaches, teachers, um, aunts, uncles, grandparents, if I'm looking at mom and dad and saying, who am I? And they look back and they say, you are strong, you are lovely, you are allowed to make a mistake, you are um, really intelligent, you are a good cook, you are a you know beautiful little dancer, then those become my sticky notes. And I put all those sticky notes inside my heart and inside my mind, and I go through the world thinking, I, now we don't want too many of them, and we don't want them to be false. That's the key piece. They have to resonate with us. So for some people, and this can actually create narcissism, it's a very specific type of narcissism, the child will instinctively know if the parent, if the child, you know, gets a D in math, and the parent is saying, oh, my golden child, you are the next Einstein. <laughs> oh, forget about the D. It was all the teacher. It has nothing to do with you. The child instinctively knows, hey, mom, I wasn't studying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so that actually can build a certain type of uh, form of narcissism. But if there is an authenticity on the parts of the parents and the parents help the child build, this is a self-esteem builder, to see where they can use improvement in a kind and non-critical way. And so, okay, well, let, you know, let's do it this way. I love how you did it this way, but, you know, let's spell um, pink, P-I-N-K, not P-I-K, or, you know, whatever it is. And so the child learns in a safe way, and so the child has all of these positive sticky notes, and then the ones that were corrections, the child learns, I'm not right, wrong, good, bad, I just needed to make a correction. So that's the ideal way that it flows. A more medium route, middle of the road route, is the child who gets a good found or good enough foundation from the family. Maybe mom gives good sticky notes and dad is a big critic and gives some negative ones, but mom balances it and teachers balances. And so that child may have, you know, some sticky notes inside that say, oh, you know, he or she might remember dad saying, you're lazy or, you know, you should be thinner. That's a common one I hear that people remember from early childhood. Or, you know, you'll never be good enough right, those kind of things, and those stick in us, and we remember them even more than the positive ones because they hurt. Then you look at a very um, harmful childhood, one that was where there's a lot of trauma, which unfortunately this applies to a lot more people than we realize and a lot more people than um, receive treatment for it, where they grew up with either a very difficult, narcissistic, challenging, negative, critical parent, one or both of were that way, and then one or both parents were not protected. So sometimes we have a, an incredibly violent, alcoholic, you know, some sort of parent going on just running the show, 
if the other parent gets them out of that situation, then some of the damage can be healed. But often the other parent is a codependent and will stay and not protect the children, in which case all of those sticky notes inside become very confused. The child chronically feels safe, chronically feels unloved, unworthy, not good enough, responsible for fixing things, walking on eggshells, nothing ever feels safe. And so the the child's sticky notes in that case are just a mucky mess of soiled notes that are confusing. They give no direction that just say, wow, do whatever you can to survive. And so that in its own way is an intense form of trauma for the child. And to undo all of that, some people will tend to um, use substances to cover over that substantial amount of pain. And for those who are able to get psychotherapy and begin to work through all of those sticky notes, to read them, throw them away, read them, throw them away, and plant new positive ones, you know, in their stead, then, of course, healing starts taking place. So I hope that answers the psychic sticky note question. That's great. That's another, that's another great one. <laughs> and, and can fear and joy exist in the same state? Or can we actually, I, let me build a slightly bigger question. Can we meditate our way out of joy, out of fear, or do we actually have to go back in and deal in some way with the foundations of those fear, or do you think that we can create a state of joy, which leads me to also sidebar and ask, well, how do you define joy, or what does joy look like? I know the physiological characteristics of fear, but I really I was thinking about it and thinking, I don't know the physiological states of joy. I have joy, but what's it feel like? So that that's a large bundle of questions, but about can we meditate our way out of fear and how do we how do we gra- graduate from fear to joy? Okay. Such a beautiful bundle of questions. So let me answer the first one, which is can we meditate our way out of fear? I believe that fear, yes, I believe that we can. Once we are aware that the fear is not an immediate rational threat. Thus, if we are walking down the road and we feel that somebody is coming up behind us with a knife in their hand and we see them, it's going to be very difficult to meditate yourself out of fear. In fact, you could probably do it if you're highly advanced, but it will not save your life, right? So -hmm. there are times where we don't want to meditate our way out of fear unless you're okay with being killed at the hands of the prowler, right? But um, for, for most of us, we would want to say, okay, I hear these footsteps behind me. There is a threat. You turn, you see the man with the knife, and you say, hey, do I freeze? Do I fight? Do I flee? Do I appease? Those are my choices. So if it's not an immediate real-life threat, yes, I do believe 
that we can meditate our way out of fear. But again, we must first survey the environment to make sure we are physically safe because that's what we need. Once we know we are physically safe, and I can actually give a real-life example of this. You'll love this. When the fires were, you know, surrounding us in our county last week and evacuations and power outages, I realized, and I'm a psychologist, so I hold myself to a pretty high standard, and I'm a body worker, and, you know, I'm a wellness expert. So I look at myself, and I try and walk my talk. And I was leading my office, and I was going, wow, I'm not feeling well. What is going on with me? I have my therapist's hat off. What's going on? So I do what I ask my clients to do on a scale of zero to ten. First, what am I feeling? So I said, what am I feeling? I'm feeling anxious. Okay. On a scale of zero to ten, how anxious am I feeling? Well, I'm at a five. Okay, that's pretty high for, for you, Carla. Yes, it is high for me. What's causing this? So I start having a dialogue. The dialogue is, I'm uncertain. I don't know if the fires will take our home, if there will be another evacuation, mandatory evacuation warning. I need to under, that's what's happening for me. So I I take a read on what's going on, and then what can I do? Is there anything I can do? Well, in this case, really, there isn't. There isn't. I can check the news, listen to make sure my surroundings are safe. I can't affect the power. And so what I did as I got in my car is I meditated with music in the background. Of course, I have to be alert. I'm driving. And I did some self-soothing work as I headed home so that by the time I got home, I was probably down to a one or a two. Hmm. Once I was home, I do, even though, you know, we didn't have power, there was enough light that I know, and I couldn't go for a walk because, you know, it would have been too dark at that time. So I do my go-to thing, which for me is cleaning, right? Just dusting, wiping countertops. If I can't go for a walk, feel soothing. But before I knew it, I was doing meditative practice. Yeah, the wiping, the moving. I wasn't ready to sit still and do seated meditation. But that brought me down to, you know, just a hint above a zero. Then I could sit down. Now, juxtaposition. My husband comes and I say, honey, how are you doing? Oh, fine, no problem. Honey, work. You know, everything, look at all what's going on. Are you sure you're okay? Absolutely, I'm not feeling a thing. Interesting, let's speed, speed up a day or two. The poor man who was feeling nothing was not conscious of the anxiety that was within all of us in the county. He developed an in, two really intense sores below his eye. And mm. his pattern is to get those sores when he's under extreme stress. And so we look at indeed whether you want to realize it or not realize it. I had clients who developed full-body rashes, who developed twitches during all of this. So again, if we can meditate our way out of fear, but we must first get the physical body to be calm, we must first, under, again, scan the environment, acknowledge your emotions. Can you do something? These are the steps. Can you do anything to change your situation? If you can't, find ways to soothe your body and mind 
and just melt and melt and melt until you're able to do a meditation. But you see, Richard, that it's so important that you don't jump to straight, I must do this. It's about attending to the body, mind, and spirit in a sequential fashion that works for you. And it will not always be the same fashion. That's why I tell people, adjust. I give my clients toolkits. Adjust as the situation calls for. Sometimes you'll want to go for a walk. Sometimes you'll want to take a yoga class. Sometimes you'll want to do power lifting. Sometimes you'll want to just bathe yourself in essential oils or take a shower. So again, sometimes talking with friends is the right thing to do. But we all need to know our toolkit so that we can take fear befriend it because it's there as a friend it's just giving us information and i can either let it rule me and or and scare me or i can slow it down and say you're you're informing me okay okay and i keep working with it until i've extracted the necessary information and then come into a soothed space so i hope that answered the first question then moving into what is what is joy and that is so important because we the paradigm I work with is that, just to keep it simple, I work with a model of um, eight emotions and then also a model of five emotions. It's the more stripped-down version. And that model gives us five basic um, primitive emotions of fear, anger, joy, sadness, and disgust. Why those five? And some people will say to me, well, why five negative and only one positive? Well, they're actually all positive because they're all meant to inform us. It's how we use them that makes them positive or negative, yes? So we have fear. Fear lets us know I am under threat. We have anger. Anger generally lets us know I'm being disrespected. My boundaries are being violated. Something is not right. Um, Then we have disgust. Disgust is there to tell us, I've eaten a bad berry or a bad mushroom, I must throw it up or I will die. I mean, it's an instinctive response that lets us know, oh, this is not healthy. So there's disgust. Then we have sadness. Sadness is there, again, so that we know I'm mourning something that was important to me. I am sad. Thus, if we look at it as with a mother and a child in a primitive way, that sadness, if her child, if she did not feel sad and her her child has a fever, she would not tend to the child and there would be no, you know, survival of the species. So sadness is there for a very important reason. In the same way, using the same mother, like the mother and child, that same analogy, we look at the mother and child and the mother is holding the child and if she feels joy at having the child, she will want to care for the child. So joy, again, is survival. It brings us to the appreciation place. So that just kind of gives us the roots of the emotions and a little explanation of them. And again, so jumping, let me jump just a little bit to the side. Well, Why is an emotion different from a feeling? And is an emotion different from a feeling? Well, yes, it is. Our emotions are the primitive responses. The emotions feed into the brain The brain looks at the emotion based on historical information and then spits out one of thousands of feelings. And that is why if I see a lemon, I might feel joyful 
because I might have wonderful memories of lemons. If your mother stuck a lemon in your mouth when you swore as a child, you might look at a lemon and it will go through your brain, that, that the image of the lemon, and you might come out with anger, disgust, fear. So again, our experiences inform the feelings that we ultimately have, and that's why there are thousands of feelings, but only a handful of emotions. So what is joy? Joy, joy, I love this. As I was working with the concept of joy, I realized that for me this metaphor was the best that I could do in explaining my concept of joy. I believe that we are all born unless we've suffered severe trauma in utero. We are all born with a candle of joy, a votive, so to speak. When we come out into the world, we then put that joy into a glass container. Life brings soot onto the glass container. The more trauma we experience, the less healing we experience, the more soot builds up. The candle is still there. It is still burning. It is always there, always accessible. But depending upon the depth and nature of the soot, we may not realize it is there. So the way to get to the joy is to continue to consciously, intentionally wipe off the soot. And the reason I think psychotherapy is so helpful We don't just wipe off the soot or cover the soot with alcohol and drugs and sex addictions and, you know, work addictions and money addictions. We actually wipe off the soot saying, okay, well, this is what happened. Can I change it? Can I do better? And if not, we just wipe it off and throw that bit away. And so it's the conscious part. And, and this speaks to the question you said, well, something like, do we need psychotherapy? Do we need to work through this stuff? I don't think we always need to because when I work with trauma, what I find is as I'm helping a client wipe off a big chunk of soot, often that wiping takes away a lot of associated trauma. So it's not as though every trauma, every challenge has to be worked with individually. I just think we have to get the roots out. We have to address the roots. And that takes courage and patience and diligence and and all of that. So I think that we all do have that divine right of joy. It is about learning how to access the light, how to wipe off the soot. How is that? That's great. Which, amazingly enough, leads me... We are here actually talking about aging joyfully. (laughs) And I am going to miraculously bring this to a point that actually ties into this, I think. In your book, you talk about being luminous from the inside out. And it seems to me that joy is a pathway to that. Is that true? Am I Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe that when we see a child and we gravitate to that child, when we see a dog and we gravitate to that dog, I think we are gravitating to the essence of joy. When we see a beautiful person, I'm not talking physically beautiful. 
um, uh, because I read energy. So I can see somebody that might be a you know magazine cover model. I don't know, but if I'm not reading joy energy, I won't be registering that person as attractive one way or the other. It'll just kind of get a flat line zero for me. So I think that that is why if we read energy, if we read joy, we are going to gravitate to the people who like Caesar Milan, like Marion Woodman, like, um, you know, I, I think of Audrey Hepburn. We are going to gravitate toward people who have a luminosity no matter their age. It has nothing to do with chronological age. It has to do with the cultivation of that joyful energy that lives inside, and that generally must be done consciously. As children, we don't have to work on it consciously because society hasn't messed with our brain yet. It hasn't messed with our way of being. But once a child becomes socialized away from joy, and that happens, children are socialized away from joy. Once that happens, um, you think about <laughs> about children in their natural way, natural state. They sleep when they're tired. They eat when they're hungry. They are just these natural, beautiful beings. And we, sadly enough, meaning well often, we get them away from that. Instead of them following their natural appetite, we say, eat everything on your plate. There are children starving in, in Africa. We don't say, eat until you're full. We'll put the leftovers away for later. When you're hungry, come back. Because it's inconvenient. When a child touches... Um, even at a very young age, their genitalia, a little boy or a little girl, tiny, and I'm talking tiny children who don't know anything, their hands are shooed away and the mom says in embarrassment, oh, no, 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 you cannot do that. You cannot touch your own body, right? As a, children, as a child giggles at an inopportune moment, whether in church or in public, the child is told, shh, you know, don't do that. A child cries because they've fallen and scraped their knees. What do we say, even the best of us? And I fortunately, I learned this message early, early on. We say, do not cry. Everything will be all right. A child doesn't want to hear that. The child just wants to hear, oh, you're hurt. Let me hold you. Can I put on a Band-Aid? Whether there's a skin knee or not, right? It's about the attention. Boys, and I get a little sad when I think about this, boys are given an even more demonic message and I'm intentionally using the word demonic they are told don't cry you're a sissy you're a girl if you cry so we teach our boys and this is why I believe it's it really has the essence of being demonic because we divorce boys males at an early age from their nurturing side from their sensitive side from their emotional side so that they are told overtly that they are not allowed to feel their feelings, or they're going to have their feelings one way or another. And so they grow up to be angry adults or self-anesthetized adults. And men in our culture are generally allowed to have two feelings, one of which is not a feeling. Our men are allowed to be angry and fine. And that's it. Where at least women are allowed to be, you know, sad 
but women are generally not really allowed to be angry. But I work with clients on developing all of their all of their emotions, noticing all of their emotions, not just joy. Because the pathway to joy is about knowing all of your emotions, appreciating all of them, using them wisely as information, and all of that allows greater peace and joy. <sighs> a lot to take in, isn't it? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's a whole other show talking about the dynamics of what men are taught or allowed to express versus how women are taught to express or speak or feel. Oh, That's a whole other show. That's I a whole other like. Men. Yes. It blows my mind. Oh, it does. Mm. It gives me chills. I just grieve for our men that we have have done. We collectively have done this to men. To well, and back to dogs. Back to dogs, they would never do this. They don't have this. They don't have this judgment. They don't have this, like, you're a girl, you can't do that. Like, really? <laughs> I'll show you what I can do, mister. You know, there is none of that kind of dynamic. And so that's a whole other show. <laughs> but that was really wonderful. Thank you. We could have so many directions. So many possibilities. <laughs> but with that stunning time already, where I have to ask you, where would you like people to find out more information about your work? And where would you like them to find Aging Joyfully? Which I highly recommend. I know this show didn't seem like we got to Aging Joyfully, but it's just I just felt that the material that we talked about really led to getting to joy. We have to get through all... We, pass through all of that because we're not dogs we have to pass through all that to get to joy and that's such a powerful place to be absolutely and i think that the timing especially with the southern california fires and we're headed into you know the season of natural disasters for many parts of the country and it is really time well spent so that listeners can feel validated and heard and as though they can have a sense of direction and support in creating joy, even when times are tough. It's not mutually exclusive, right? And so as far as finding aging joyfully, my website is drcarlamanley.com, C-A-R-L-A-M-A-N-L-Y.com. You can also find me at agingjoyfully.com. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Dr. Carla Manley, and again, my book, which is published by Familius Publishing, a great publisher, who also published Joy from Fear. Um, you can find my book on the Familius website. You can find it on the usual places, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and if you are a lover of supporting local stores, as I am. Um, the Copperfield stores in Sonoma County carry my books. Um, blessings to them and to all local retailers. And um, you can find, if you're not in Sonoma County, simply go to IndieBound, and there is a link on my website. And IndieBound will help you access the closest um, location to you for my books. And they're great. They'll show you where it's available in various airports if you're on your way to it, you know, on a trip or something. So IndieBound is a great source. And I welcome questions from listeners. You can find me on my website. And I just 
love the idea that we can all be part of the movement to creating greater joy in our lives because that's what allows for greater love and awareness in the world. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Manley. A great, great conversation. Really (laughs) wonderful. It's a joy to talk to you and such a privilege. (laughs) Thank you very much. Everybody else have a great, well, all of us have a great rest of the weekend. And for those of us that are having joy from having power back, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Walk into a room and flip a switch and something happens. Wow, it's great. And you turn on the tap and there's water. There's water. And you can have a shower. Oh, it's uh, it's really, truly, it is joyful. It was joyful. It is, really, and it turning. builds appreciation, doesn't it, for the things we tend to take for granted. Very much it's, so. Uh, clean air. Joy. Yeah. Joy, exactly. All right, thank you very much, and everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Blessings.